invite you to turn with me in your Bible this morning to Paul's letter to the Romans, and we will be again in chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, and God, uh, Paul has in chapters 1 and 2 been setting down the reality of the fact that uh, the wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, that the world has a huge crisis, and the crisis is sin. And that the law is no help. Uh, People think that they uh, can appeal to the law, that I live a pretty good life, I'm a pretty good person, I don't do uh, lots of bad things, I'm faithful to my my wife and, and, uh, and I work hard, I'm a good employer or employee, and people appeal to the law. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a nice person. And yet Paul says, God says in his word, that the law is no help because the law says above everything you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. And none of us has, has uh, done that as we ought to. We've all sinned. And Paul makes that very clear, that there is no one then who is righteous, no one who deserves the sentence of innocent when we stand before the judgment throne of God. So that Paul says the law is given so that the mouth of everyone is silenced, stopped. Stop appealing to how good a person you are. Uh, Because the truth is that we are guilty before the law of God and guilty before the throne of God and justly deserving the condemnation then of God. Well, against that backdrop, Paul now comes with this wonderful gospel message that God has made a way for sinners to actually be declared righteous and innocent. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. I'm going to begin reading at verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's ask the Lord to bless His Word. Father, You've given us this Word by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we trust now that You will give the same Spirit that we might understand these things. Lord, may the scales fall off our eyes, and we see the truth of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus and the wonder of Your grace to sinners in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning um, we come to the mother load of gospel truth. Uh, if you were a miner um, and you were out tracing down veins of, of uh, precious uh, minerals, maybe gold, uh, and, you, and you, you find, you trace that vein back to the mother load, uh, this is the mother load. Uh, the gospel is, is uh, all throughout Scripture. You find traces of it and veins of it throughout the Bible. But here in Romans 3:21 and following, we've come to uh, weighty nuggets of gold lying all over the place. And, and they're contained in these, these big, heavy, beautiful gospel words. Words like redemption and justification and propitiation and righteousness. 
They're, they're big, weighty words packed with wonderful gospel truth. You might ask the question, well, why does Paul use such big words? Right? Doesn't he know that people in the 21st century don't read very much, and, or at least extensively, and we're not familiar with these words? Why not break it down, make it a little simpler? Well, the reason is because the gospel is vast and deep and heavy with glory. You, you can't capture it with t-shirt slogans. You have to use big words, weighty words, in order to adequately express and make it clear. And so this morning we're going to be diving into the word propitiation. What does it mean? What is it? Why does Paul use it here? What we're going to do this morning is, in the words of Isaac Watts, we're going to survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And the, the question, of course, that we have to ask is, what are, we, what are we seeing when we look at the cross? Of course, we see a man who's hanging there with nails through his hands and his feet, but that's just the external thing. What is actually happening there on the cross of Jesus Christ? What are the weighty, um, deep, glorious things that are happening in the heavenly realms in, in terms of, of God in His relationship to His Son and in His relationship to sinners? What is happening to, to sin and death and guilt and justice on the cross? What are we seeing when we survey the wondrous cross? And to that end, we need to look then at this word propitiation because Paul puts it right in the middle of his, of his uh, paragraph explaining the essential core of the gospel. Here we have this word propitiation. James Boyce has called it the forgotten doctrine. Uh, former generations of Christians were well aware of this term. Uh, they, they were richer because of it. But it's, it's fallen out of use in part because it's fallen out of some of the modern translations. The NIV uh, call, uh, does not use the word propitiation. Other translations have avoided it as well. Unfortunately, because it's a great word, it's a necessary word, it's an essential word. Jesus' death was specifically a propitiatory death. And it matters. What does it mean? We'll look first at the meaning of propitiation, what the word means, and then the means of propitiation, how it was accomplished, and then the purpose of propitiation. Why, did, why was it necessary? And so let's begin then the meaning of propitiation. Paul says in verse 25 that God put forward, the Father put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation. R.C. Sproul defines the word this way. He says, propitiation means to satisfy the demands of, de of justice. In terms of the biblical concept, it means to satisfy the demands of God's wrath. A common synonym would be appeasing, satisfying, and it's in the context of anger or wrath, something that's been uh, offended Something's been done wrong and someone's been offended. So uh, men, imagine that you have uh, deeply hurt your wife in some way. You said something unkind. You forgot your anniversary. Something that has, that has truly hurt her and maybe made her angry. And you realize what you've done. And so you, uh, you decide to buy her flowers or buy her something that, that uh, some gift that you know she'll appreciate, and, you, and you, you put a little note on there, honey, I'm so very, very sorry. Uh, right, please forgive me. You, 
You confess your sin and, and you, you, you ask her forgiveness. You express your love for her and you bring the gift and you hold it forward. What are you doing? You're propitiating. There's anger here that needs to be turned aside, right? You want to be back in her favor and good graces. And so you put forward the flowers or whatever you've done as a means of propitiation. That's what you're doing. Well, it's, it's, the word is much like that. It doesn't, flowers won't quite capture the whole truth as you'll see in a moment. The, word, the Greek word Paul uses here is um, the word that in the Greek Old Testament. So the Old Testament, of course, written in Hebrew, it was translated into the, uh, into the Greek. And in the Greek version called the Septuagint, the word, the word hilasterion is used, and that's the word Paul uses here. And hilasterion in the, old, in the Greek version of the Old Testament is the word for the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. So the covenant was the, 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 the uh, holy box placed in the most inner sanctum of the tabernacle and the temple. And if you remember, once a year, a, the high priest would come in with blood, the blood of a sacrifice, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. That was the place of propitiation. And so when Paul uses this word, his Jewish readers at least will have a very good understanding what he's talking about. Paul is telling us that Christ's death is, is a propitiation in that it satisfies the demands of justice so that the wrath of God is appeased. Now, that's not a hard doctrine to understand, but it, it has become increasingly a difficult doctrine for people to accept. Uh, liberal Christianity primarily, but um, the world in general scoffs at uh, the idea of uh, Jesus having to die to satisfy the wrath of the Father. Um, it, it's been charged that this is a pagan notion or, or this has crept in through the legal mind of John Calvin. So William Neal, a, a liberal theologian of the past, says this, quote, It is worth noting that the fire and brimstone school of theology who revel in ideas such as that Christ was made a sacrifice to appease an angry God, finds no support in Paul. Those notions, these notions came into Christian theology by way of legalistic minds of the medieval churchmen, John Calvin. They are not biblical Christianity. Uh, this last week in high school theology class, we watched a video by Steve Chalk. Chalk, he's got a, he's a British um, pastor, and he uh, has... Uh, 95 questions, kind of imitating Martin Luther, and his questions deal with a variety of uh, church issues, uh, theological issues. And uh, so he talks about um, this idea of uh, violent redemption, uh, the idea of penal substitution, that, that Jesus is on the cross uh, trying to appease his angry father, and, and he uh, just scoffs, sneers at it, sneers at it. Well, the reason he sneers at it because he doesn't understand what he's talking about. Jesus is not on the cross trying to appease an angry father. If you, if you just read the text, you'll notice that the, the action belongs to the father. God is putting forward Jesus. Now, why would the father do that? Well, he would do that because of his love for sinners and because of God's recognition of the reality of sin and the reality of his own righteousness and the, that what it's going to require in order to save 
sinners. You see, the wrath of God is precisely what Paul's talking about. So, um, if you look at the, the previous two chapters, right? He, Paul's been talking about the wrath of God being revealed against the ungodliness and right, un- unrighteousness of men. Verse two, verse, uh, chapter 2, 5, Paul says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. So when Paul's talking about God's wrath, he's not talking about God flying off the handle. He's talking about this settled disposition of a righteous God who is going to pronounce his righteous judgment on sin. He's going to give sin what it deserves, and what it deserves is the fire of wrath, consuming wrath. That's what it deserves. So it's not God just being angry. It's God being righteous. Now, there's no necessary reason, of course, that God should do anything at all to rescue us from the wrath that we deserve. God would have been perfectly just, wouldn't He, to simply let sinners receive their just reward. That's what He does with the angels. Angels don't get redeemed. Angels aren't, um, aren't saved, fallen angels. They're left to the consequences of their fall. So there's no necessary reason. God would have been perfectly righteous to leave us in our sin, but having determined to save sinners, then it is necessary for God to satisfy the just demands of the law and the just requirements of His wrath. So we have the same issue we talked about last week. If God's wrath is a necessary response to evil, which it is because God is righteous, and if we are evil, which we are, Well, then how can God forgive sinful people? That's the question on the table. And the the biblical answer is propitiation. God in Christ has satisfied the demands of the law and appeased His wrath. How? How does the cross actually accomplish that? Well, Paul tells us very specifically the means of propitiation. Notice it says in verse 25, "...whom God displayed publicly..." as a propitiation in His blood. Now, if you've read your New Testament, in fact, if you've read your Old Testament, you'll find blood everywhere in the Bible. you find blood in the Old Testament sacrifices, and you find blood here, and it's referred to uh, again and again in the New Testament. Why do the, gospel, uh, the Bible writers keep talking about blood, the blood of the animals or the blood of Jesus Christ? It sounds maybe needlessly graphic, well, it is undoubtedly graphic, and it's more graphic maybe than you imagine. We sort of sanitize this idea of the blood of Jesus Christ. The word here that Paul uses, a haima, does not refer to the blood flowing through your veins. That's not what Paul's talking about. Haima is the term for sacrificed blood. So I remember as a boy on, on, on the farm, we had a, we had a, a cow that was, um, had injured herself and, and was sick, and she was clearly dying, and Dad decided to put her out of her misery. And so um, he takes a knife, and he slits the jugular vein, and blood, gallons of blood, just gush out. Steaming, stinking red blood. That's Haima. Haima is when the priests would take the 
the sheep that's been brought or the goat and, and hold up its neck, its head, so the neck is exposed and take the knife and slit it and the, and the, and the blood would just be pumped out on the ground. It's, it's graphic. It's violent. And the priests would do this one after the other. Their clothes would be drenched in the stench of blood. That's what Paul is talking about. He wants us to see, you see, that, that this is a necessary part of, of salvation. That when Jesus Christ is sacrificed, he is, he's giving his, his blood. He want, Paul wants to see Jesus slain. Christ is slain. His, his life is offered up in a bloody sacrifice. He wants us to see the hyma of Jesus. And because that is the means by which divine wrath due to our sin, is satisfied. How? Well, you see, because Jesus is paying the penalty for sin. Jesus is paying the penalty for sin. The soul that sins shall surely die. That's what the law says. You see, divine forgiveness is not the same as, uh, you know, a governmental pardon. So if the governor of Michigan decides to... Um, to pardon someone who's committed a serious crime... That pardon does not make the man innocent, does it? The, it simply says that he's no longer required to pay the penalty. But, but it doesn't make him innocent. It doesn't make him righteous. He's not innocent. He's just allowed to go free. But that is not what God does in the gospel. That's not biblical. When the Bible talks about God's forgiveness and God's pardon, he's, God does not pardon the way a governor pardons. You see, we are pardoned because Jesus paid. We're pardoned for our sins because the penalty has been paid. So in Colossians 2.14, Paul says that God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So here you have the law of God and all the requirements that say you must do this and you must not do that. And here we have the reality of our lives, which is a violation of everything that's here. And all of these violations, you see, incur a debt. We, we are under the, now the an obligation to do this, and we fail to do this, and so now we, are, we owe a debt we can't pay, and we deserve then the penalty of death. That's, that's the moral reality of, of the world. But the gospel, you see, says that God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us. How did God cancel the record of debt that stood against us? And the answer is, He nailed it to the cross. That's what He did. He nailed it to the cross. So, so God canceled the record of our debt by having Jesus pay the debt. And so that's what we see when we're surveying the wondrous cross. We're not simply seeing um, an example of love. So, so there are many who, who teach that the cross is just an expression of God's love. Well, it is an expression of God's love. But how? Why? In what way? Well, it's an expression of God's love in that, as John says in 1 John 4, verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son, sent His Son as a propitiation. The love is exactly that God puts His own Son on the cross to pay the penalty of our guilt. You see, propitiation satisfies the wrath of God, so the wrath of God is turned away. It, it does not... Uh, 
Jesus on the cross is not just a shield protecting us from the wrath of God. Jesus on the cross is a sponge receiving all the wrath of God so that it's satisfied. It's done away with. We're pardoned because by the heim of Jesus, our sentence is paid. So we're not pardoned despite what the law says. That's not the gospel. Yeah, the law says you must be perfect, but, but in spite of the fact that you're not, God just says, fine. No, it's not it at all. The gospel is that the law says be perfect, and we have failed to be perfect, and God gave us a perfect one in our place to bear our sin and pay our penalty so that now the law requires our pardon. It's an, the gospel, you see, is an act of justice. God is not just showing mercy to us on the cross. He's giving us justice as Jesus suffers the penalty and we receive the pardon, right? And Paul will go on to say that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that's, that's the, the, the thing that Paul is, uh, really wants us to see here, the purpose of propitiation. When we think of Christ's death, we generally think of it in terms of what it does for us, right? It's ramifications for me. Jesus saves me from my sin by his death. But when Paul thinks of Christ's death, here at least, he's first of all thinking about what it means to God, why it matters to God. Because you see, in the cross, God is doing something for himself. And what he's doing is vindicating his name. The, 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 the most essential thing at stake in the cross is not our salvation. The most essential thing at stake in the cross is God's reputation. That's the most essential thing at stake. God is vindicating his righteousness. Now, why does he need to do that? Well, Paul tells us in the last part of verse 25 that God, in his divine forbearance, in his patience, God has passed over former sins. You see, the problem is that ever since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, God has not been dealing with men as their sins deserve. He's not been dealing with men strictly according to their transgressions. If he were, the moment a man sinned, he would be put to death. But God doesn't put men to death, at least not for years and years and years. For, for a thousand years, he's been not only allowing men to live, but blessing them. So Jesus will say, be like your Father in heaven who sends his reign on the just and the wicked. So not only does God not destroy people when they sin, he sends rain to them. He gives them blessings of children and crops and health. And the beauty of his creation. He just gives these blessings, blessings, blessings to wicked people. Now, you can't just say, well, that's nice. It's vastly more profound than that. The, the, the challenge is, how is that just? How is it just? So, think about um, the family of Uriah and Bathsheba, lovely young couple, um, madly in love, newly married, 
Uriah is a, just a stud. He, he's a, Uriah is a, one of David's um, inner circle. A, a tremendous warrior. Godly man. Everything we know about Uriah is incredibly impressive. And Bathsheba, his beautiful young wife. Wonderful young family. And then the king, David, just out of the lechery of his own heart, steals Bathsheba away to his own bed, commits adultery, and then has Uriah, her husband, murdered to cover up the pregnancy. Now, I mean, that's just over-the-top wickedness. And when David is finally confronted by Nathan, Nathan comes, right, and tells the story about a man who had a sheep and it's the only sheep he had and, and then this rich guy next door stole it away and, and sacrificed it and, and David in his, in his self-righteous uh, uh, anger, um, the man deserves to die. And Nathan says, he sure does and you're the man. You're the man. What does David say? David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Well, that's exactly right. What does Nathan say? Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Just like that. Murder, adultery are overlooked. If you're a, if you're a, a, a member of the, of the family of Uriah or Bathsheba, if, if you have any sense of justice, how can you not be outraged? How come David gets away with this? Where is the justice? How is, how is this possible? How could God allow this to happen? Ahithophel, David's counselor, grandfather of Bathsheba, later on when he realizes that God is not actually going to punish David for this, he hangs himself. The injustice it just reeks, you see. And that story is multiplied a billion times in the history of the world. God sees every single thing that wicked men think and say and do, but he does not destroy them. He sends rain so their crops can grow. And so you can see that the charge could be leveled against God that he is not righteous. He is not just. He does not apply the sentence of the law that says, that requires the soul that sins shall surely die. In fact, what you see happening is sinners are not punished. They don't die. They grow ripe and rich and fat, and, and they die happy in their beds in, in old age. Happens to King David. It happens to the men in, in Psalm 73 where Asaph says, I just about lost my faith over this. When I see the prosperity of the wicked, they don't suffer like normal people do. That's the world we live in, you see. And so it, this is a very serious charge. It casts aspersions on the glory of God. How can he be sovereign God and reign over this wicked world and yet the wicked so often flourish? And he allows sins to go unpunished. He overlooks them. How can God be righteous? Where's the justice? Every time he allows a David to live, every time he forgives sins of people without making them pay the penalty of their crime, God seems to be denigrating his own righteous name. Where is the justice? Well, here's the justice. This is the justice. Survey the cross. Because there, God demonstrates 
His justice, His righteousness. There He vindicates His name. There He honors His glory. There His righteous wrath is unleashed and poured out. And every sin of of His people is laid on Jesus Christ. And the floodgate of divine anger and all the the infinite abhorrence against sin is unleashed upon Jesus. This is God's answer to the charge. The innocent Son of God is crushed under the righteous wrath of God. Now, who will lay any charge against God? Who dare suggest that God is not fair, that God is not just, when God has vindicated His name and His justice at the cost of His own sinless Son bearing our sin. Who dare, who dare charge God ever with wrong? He's vindicated His righteousness by putting Jesus, His Son, His spotless, sinless Son to death, bearing our sin. And He's vindicated His righteousness. God is just. Sin is rewarded with what it deserves. And that's what you see when you survey the wondrous cross. It's astonishing what God was willing to do in love for us and in commitment to His glory. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because nothing is more necessary in the whole world than that God be God and that God be manifested as good and as righteous. And if there's, and if there's nothing else about this that makes any sense, it, at least there should be this. I am so thankful that God is glorified and vindicated as righteous and just and good. That God is glorified. Remember what Jesus prays before he goes to the cross? He says, Father, glorify your name. That's why he was there. And God says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The cross is just stunning in what is happening between the Father and the Son. And no one can lay a charge against God. Praise God. But it matters because, you see, if that's true, if no one can lay any charge against God in the cross, then no one can lay a charge against God's elect, those who've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ through faith. No one can lay any charge against you. No one can lay any charge against me. Justice has been satisfied. There's there's nothing more for the law to say. And, And this is true for those who come to Jesus in faith, those who come believing. That's what Paul says. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, not earned by your efforts, by your devotion, to be received by faith. To, for, when, when we come and just say, God, this is what I need. I need, I need my sin to be propitiated. I need, I need the just sentence of the law to be satisfied in my case, that every sin I've committed, I can, I can show in truth the penalty's been paid. There's nothing left. The law has no demand on me. I'm free because I'm justified. And sin has been propitiated. And friends, it matters because in this, the love of God is made known to you. Do you ever wonder, does God love me? 
Well, this is love, John says, not that we loved God, but he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And I would encourage you to take that and press that truth into the reality of your life. Do you ever, do you ever doubt your salvation? Lack assurance? Lack joy? Lack peace with God? Press this truth down into the reality of your life. Just let this truth resonate and, and simmer there in your heart. This is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. This is what you are seeing when you survey the wondrous cross. And as the truth of that becomes more precious and real to you, more weighty in your own life, you, your mouth will be taken, there will be no charges against God from your heart, from your mouth. No sense that he's being unfair, that he's being unkind. He has loved you this much. And you are free to receive that love. Free to have full assurance in this propitiatory act of Christ. Your sins are not just forgiven, your sins are paid. The debt is paid. And you've been robed in the righteousness of Christ and you are free to live in the truth and the assurance and the joy and the peace of that reality. You only need to believe it. I pray that you do. Amen. Father, what an astonishing thing you've done in Jesus as you have vindicated your glorious name. And at the same time, oh, Father, have poured out love and mercy upon us. Jesus, how could we possibly thank you for your willingness to be crushed under the weight and the guilt and the wrath due to our sin? And we thank you, O Lord Jesus, that you were willing to do that, not only because you loved us, but because you loved the Father's glory. And so God is found to be both just and the justifier of, of sinners. As our debt is paid in the cross of Christ. And oh God, I just pray this would rip all pride out of our life. Who are we to boast? That this would, this would tear all complaining out of our life. Who are we to complain? That there would never be charges that you've wrong, been wrong or unfair to us. Not when you vindicated your name, your justice in the blood of your own son as he bore our sin. And so, Lord, please bring these truths to the depths of where we live so it transforms who we are. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing When I Survey the Wonders Cross.
people said. Amen. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace through the propitiation of Jesus Christ. Amen.